This is The Guardian. Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle willst du das wissen? So eine vorlotte Bitch wie dich sollte man an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... und wir feiern dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Relief again. The international break is over. Don't have to worry about that for five weeks. Okay, let's enjoy these four then. The Premier League kicks off with the Merseyside derby. Another one of those early kickoffs Jurgen Klopp loves against a resurgent. Okay, that's a bit strong. Against a not as terrible as they were a few weeks ago, Everton. Chelsea Arsenal looks like the pick of the games on paper or if they were playing in the mid-2000s, but the Blues have picked up recently and could trouble Arsenal's unbeaten start. Brighton's trip to Man City looks fun, even if the omnipotent Rodri is back. It's easy to predict Villa will have 100% possession against West Ham, much harder to pick the result, while Sheffield United and Bournemouth search for their first wins against Manchester United and Wolves respectively. The EFL returns to Ooh, Gary Rowett gets the boot from Millwall. Wayne Rooney begins his tenure as Birmingham manager. As well as the games, we'll discuss Mo Salah's statement on the events in the Middle East and how the Premier League plans to reflect the humanitarian crisis. There's a review of Pascal Chimbonda's managerial debut. Chris Waddle's return, Father Ted mistakes, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Noradine Trowdry, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Very well. Jonathan Faduba, hello. Good morning, Max. And hello, Nick Ames. Hello, Max. I may not interest any listeners, but uh, if I said the intro quickly, it was because we're half an hour late because everybody's Zoom completely messed up. But we're here and we will deliver you a podcast. If it's only 20 minutes long, you'll know why. Um, uh, Liverpool-Everton then, uh, 12.30 kickoff. Liverpool have only lost one of the previous 25 Merseyside derbies. Um, a A very optimistic Evertonian could suggest they're in better form, Noz. Two wins in three, Liverpool two without a win. Well, yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, this could be the moment where where they shock everyone. There's there's always this thing around um, around the Merseyside derby of like where the, where people say, "Oh, form goes out of the window," but like form always stays in the window. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> this one could be it. Um, Does it stay in the room? I mean, if it goes out the window, it. Is it, or is it staying in the window? It, it depends, I suppose. Like, if you've got an extension, like, it could just go into conservatory. True, yeah. But, yeah, like, like, like Everton, any time I've said how how rubbish Manchester United are and, and, and how we are the most dysfunctional team in the league, loads of Everton fans pile on and say, shut your damn <laughs> mouth. Like, how dare you? Like, we exist. <laughs> But no, they've uh, proved that wrong slightly recently. So, and also, like, I mean, like with the manager, like he he's he's a good manager. So you'd hope that even with like all their problems and everything, he'd he'd get them into some kind of order. So, so yeah, generally accepted, Jonathan, that Liverpool have been really good so far, despite the defeat at Tottenham, which probably shouldn't have happened, and the draw at Brighton, which was a, a brilliant game. I've had to remind myself of their last result because it feels about six years ago now. Yeah, Liverpool have started the season really well. I think I don't think form really goes out the window, but in this one, because it seems to tend to go to form, uh, Liverpool seems to do really well. But um, yeah, they've started well. Obviously, they're scoring a lot of goals. They've got a lot of options off the bench. 
it's defensively maybe where they're a little bit leaky. They actually have similar, I think, expected goals against as Everton. So the defences are similarly sort of porous, but it's more the fact that Liverpool can bring off the likes of Jota or Diaz or or whoever, Nunes off the bench if they need to, and, and they can rotate the forward option so well. Whereas Everton are kind of, Calvert-Lewin's had his, his injury issues and, and, and Beto's sort of settling in. So I think that's the area. Everton's expected goals is actually quite good as well, to be fair, this season. They're not doing too badly in terms of statistical numbers, but they're still kind of finding their feet, I feel. Uh, so yeah, I'm actually in the city at the moment. So this is going to be a first time I've ever been in this city for a derby. So uh, I'm excited to see what the buzz is like. There was a, the teams met in the WSL last week in the Women's Super League. Um, Everton won 1-0. So there was about 23,000 at that one at Anfield. So I think Everton fans will be hoping for a repeat. Um, no Gakpo for Liverpool. Um, Andy Robertson picked up that injury uh, as well. But no Gakpo, Nick, means more Darwin Nunes, which is always a good thing, regardless of whether he puts on football boots or some other boots, which mean he, you know, he's either absolutely elite and ice cold or just hopeless. Yeah, I think he's sometimes wearing boots of a slightly different shape by the looks of it. But uh, no, he's, yeah. he's, he's wonderful to watch. I, I, th- I think he scored for Uruguay against Brazil in the week, if I'm not wrong. You know, he's one of those players who I love to watch because he's always involved. And even if he misses three, he'll show up for the fourth. He's that sort of chaotic trier who can also come up with a, a moment of brilliance that, that you need in a derby game and um, so very much looking forward to to watching him get into the spirit of it I think he's exactly the kind of character you need and I think it's a very interesting game in general as the other guys have said I think um, it could have Sean Dyche masterclass written all over it he's pulled one or two of these out when you least expect hasn't he I, I remember the the Brighton Everton game that was 5-1 a few months ago that I covered when no one gave them a prayer and then they absolutely killed them down the flanks good result at, at the, the other week you don't quite know what's coming and they've they've got a very good physical midfield that also has its fair share of technical ability and I think the physical battle in that engine room is going to be very interesting and maybe Liverpool would have been talked into stupor at Klopp's anger at the early kickoff, and everything will catch them cold. Um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it's cut and dry this one whatsoever. I think it could be quite a nip and tuck derby day. There's also the possibility of like there could be still some hangover from the whole Vargate in terms of if there's like some some sort of contentious issue. That could be like a fun storyline, like uh, it's rumbling, oh no, the referees have overcompensated or it's another example of of, of anti-Liverpool bias. So that's one one thing hopefully we can look out for. Uh, and, and and combined with Darwin Nunes, that could be like ultimate chaos. Uh, the only thing with, with, with Nunes is that he's got cramp, I think. So he might be out as well. What, with cramp? I don't know. I don't. He suffered cramp late on for Uruguay before the game starts. Can well, that's, you? That, that's <laughs> what I thought. You, you, maybe it's one of those situations where, like, for the whole week, he's on the floor and somebody's doing that thing <laughs> they do with his leg, where, where they sort of pushing his pushing it off his boot. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's the remedy. But yeah, apparently he's he's a he could be a concern with cramp. <laughs> I once had uh, I once did all my ankle ligaments and was lying on the floor in agony, and one of my teammates. Just didn't really, you know, not medically trained, just picked up my foot. I was like, just ready to do it. I've seen this before. I've seen what they do. And I was like, no, 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 please. This is not a cramp-based, this is not a cramp-based problem. Um, on Everton's, you mentioned the dysfunctionality of Everton, their owners, their new possible owners, 777. 
They want to purchase a full stake of the club. That amounts to 94.1% of the club's shares. Uh, they intend to finance completing the new stadium, Bramley Moor Dock. The 7-7 football group, they've currently got Genoa in Italy, Vasto da Gama in Brazil, Harter, Berlin in Germany, Standard Liège in Belgium, Red Star FC in France, Severe in Spain and Melbourne Victory in Australia. This week, 777 Partners failed to provide audited financial statements to the FCA, a vital step in passing the fit and proper persons test to purchase a football club. Their own viability has been called into question as former employees have reported that bonus payments made a component of some executives' compensation have gone unpaid. A piece written by Paul Brown and our mate Philippe uh, about them uh, led with the sentence 777 Partners missed payroll to their own staff in July, failed to pay rent for their own HQ and yet are still intent on buying Everton. If the deal doesn't go ahead, um, Everton could risk bankruptcy. 7-7 Partners released a 57-word statement, said, as we have previously stated, the regulatory process in relation to the proposed acquisition of Everton FC uh, needs to be allowed the proper time and space to run their course in private, so we will not be commenting further. So we will keep our eyes uh, peeled on that one. Um, Chelsea-Arsenal, the late Saturday game, not the late late one, but the late one we're used to. Uh, Alexander Zinchenko said he would rip off Mikhailo Mudrix's balls if he scored in the game while they were on international duty, uh, which is nice. Arsenal beat City the last time out. They're unbeaten. Why, Nick? And you cover Arsenal a lot, Nick. Why, why, why do I think Chelsea might do something here? I think this is the most interesting game of the weekend, isn't it? Because Chelsea obviously had that very awkward, lucky start, but a lot of people, Pochettino included, were saying that the underlying numbers, especially attacking-wise, were not bad. And, and they were getting into all kinds of positions and missing chances. And it's just clicked a bit more in the last two games, hasn't it? I think Fulham and Burnley, maybe not the hardest two games you can have, but still Premier League away games. Scored, I think, six goals in, in the two of them. Created quite a lot more. And you kind of feel things, after a couple of months, are sort of going the way he wants them to. Um Mudrick actually, you know, might have a few issues at the end of um, Saturday's game because he's he's definitely coming coming back into it. Good goal, I think, at Fulham and a cracking goal, by the way, for Ukraine in the week at, at, at Malta, dancing inside and ripping one in from 30 yards. So I think Chelsea have got a bit of life about them now. Um, but Arsenal, Arsenal looks so stable and secure and sensible at the moment. We saw the way against Man City, admittedly a weakened Man City, but the way they kept possession, they didn't go too headstrong. They went too emotional, as um, as Arteta often puts it, especially for their home games. They've, they've kind of got this composure and cool mixed with steel about them that we haven't seen for quite a long time. They, they keep clean sheets away from home um, for fun, frankly. Um, haven't conceded too many massive chances in that time um, and they also know how to win at Stamford Bridge which for, for a long time they didn't I think it was a mucky Gabriel set piece goal last season for example won it for them so I think you've still got to say that Arsenal are favourites but I think they're going to get a sort of different kind of attacking test on Saturday to any of that they've had so far I think Chelsea will have a, a lot of pace going forward a lot of nippiness, speed, um, getting in behind down the channels. Um, and they could be threatened. But I think Arsenal should feel confident of edging it. And if they do edge it, it's exactly the kind of win they need to be racking up to, to you know, stay in that title hunt. How do you see it, Jonathan? I always, I'm always cautious when it's after an international break, these kind of big games. <clears throat> you never quite know how they're going to go. Is it going to be a lot of the players come back from international duty? Is there an element of fatigue in there? 
And so it's always, it feels like it can either be a little bit downbeat of a match or it goes crazy and it all pops off. So hopefully we'll get the latter. Um, I think I agree with Nick what he's saying in the sense of Arsenal have started to become kind of mundanely, mundanely routine in the way they're, they're ticking off wins. Um, they're not necessarily playing amazingly in, in certain games. Uh, City game is a perfect example, really, but they got the, got the win. And um, there's been other games like that where they kind of look very solid, but not necessarily vintage Arsenal. And I think that's probably how they're going to approach this game with Chelsea, probably very professionally. I feel like Arsenal are the favourite for the match. I, I, Chelsea is so hit and miss that even though they're in quite a good form at the moment, obviously you know, they've won three straight games uh, and look pretty good against Burnley. Cole Palmer's starting to come into, into, the, into the four and I'm really intrigued to see how he gets on with, with Sterling. But I, I just feel that they've, they've got, still got a little bit of a, um, a weaker back line, if that makes sense, and, and a, little bit, a little bit frail at times in certain periods of the game, whereas I feel like Arsenal manage games better um, these days. So I would edge towards Arsenal, but I think obviously for Chelsea fans, this would be that you know, have to put one. Let's face it, Chelsea haven't had really too much to, to talk about besides transfers in the last 12 months. So actually getting wins against you know, local rivals would be would be a good start. Quite hard, Noz, from a neutral's perspective to know whether you want Arsenal to keep the title race exciting, Chelsea to win because they're their underdogs, or the chaos to carry on at Chelsea because it's quite funny when Chelsea are in complete chaos. As a Manchester United fan, I've got used to thinking of the least worst case scenario. So like when it was when it was Man City versus Liverpool, that was a really tricky one because uh, which one do you want to win least? For me, it was always like I'd rather City win it than, than Liverpool because I care more about Liverpool. But yeah, then it was Arsenal. Then Arsenal were like the, the the sort of like safety sort of option. And I'm wondering now whether it's Spurs. Are Spurs the least worst case scenario? And especially with Big Ange, who everyone loves, uh, maybe maybe that is the option. So yeah, so, so, so perhaps it's less about me thinking what's best for me. It's more a case of like, can Pochettino do Spurs a favour in the title race? That's an interesting Manchester United <laughs> view, isn't it? That's, that, that's, that's what it's come to. Let's talk about them. They go to Sheffield United at eight o'clock on Saturday night. How do we feel about eight o'clock on Saturday night as a as a kickoff time? There's rumours that there may be more packages. They may spread the games out further. Nick, are you on a, an 8pm Saturday? Where do you stand on that? I feel like I don't really want to watch that game at 8 p.m. on Saturday, to be honest. Um, but but it's it's look, it's um it's another interesting one, and both teams will see it as a big opportunity, won't they? Because Sheffield United really needs some points. It's very hard to see how they get them at the moment. To be fair, although you know they, if you take out the eight nil against Newcastle, they they have stayed in a few games and been a bit un- unlucky later on. For United, I guess it's just a case of seeing. Seeing wherever that win against Brentford, I think the, the Scott McTominay, wasn't it, win against Brentford was was transformative or a mere sticking plaster. Now, I think I know the answer to that one. Um, maybe Noz can expand. Um, but I think both teams all think, OK, in this uh, brave new world of Saturday night football, we have got an opportunity here to really get a bit of momentum and get things up and started. But I think for Sheffield United, they've, they've got to start doing something because otherwise it's going to be the longest of seasons for them. Mm. Did that Scott McTominay show give you hope, Niles? I mean, it, it gave me momentary happiness. Yeah. 
which is, hey, listen, it's all we can ask for. Ex- exactly, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll take anything. I think just echoing what, what Nicky is kind of sort of inferring is, is, is that at the moment with Manchester United, there's, there's no real... Um, consistent hope in terms of you can see where in the you can see a, a trajectory to getting better because like usually even if your team is doing badly and there's bad results there's some signs that the team is doing well or they were, or they were unlucky but at the moment with, with with United it just feels as if every game is just a singular moment where they're just trying to get through I don't think there's been a single game this season where United have looked effective throughout the game and, and 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 whatever the result you can lose and look like that but 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 it, it just feels as if United are just hanging on by their fingernails in every single game and just doing whatever it takes to win that game and I know I know there's loads of injury problems especially sort of at fullback but that's the growing sort of slight concern with Ten Hag is that like there's no pattern especially this season there's nothing that you can see in that team where you kind of think this is what they're trying to do it's literally every game just trying to get a result which isn't sustainable and obviously isn't working very well has that surprised you Jonathan that that's sort of where it is at not really to be honest because United are a basket case club from top to bottom in terms of you know the situation with the takeover developments with Jim Ratcliffe you know I think most fans are probably on the fence on that one, what does what does the 25% ownership involve when you want sporting control? Don't see exactly how that works if you have 75% owners who don't want control of the entire operation of, the, of a football club, which is to run the sporting department. Um, so I don't quite understand that, that split. Um, and it just rots down from the, cl- you know, from the top to the to further down. I, I do sort of, I don't really have sympathy for Ten Hag because I think, like Noz has just said, a lot of the decisions he's making this season just seem baffling. Um, the midfield is... I think I described it as a donut, didn't I? I went, the last time I was on this, Max, uh, and I can't remember here. You know, I, I won't go on about the midfield again, but basically, I, I, I can't really decide at the moment, is, is Ten Hag lost his mind this season or has he really been, had his hands tied and he's really sort of starting to feel a little bit of the pressure of, of like what's going on around him, if that makes sense. But I think the fact that, you know, the scapegoating of Sancho or the issues with Sancho is kind of re- repeating itself with what we saw with Ronaldo last season. So there's, there's sort of patterns in the way Ten Hag wants to manage his squad, kind of having maybe one one scapegoat who 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 that is kind of you know sidelined. So if you look at matters on the pitch, like like, like Noz has said, there doesn't seem to be any kind of r- real pattern of play. You'd think after a season, Ten Hag would start to implement a certain kind of style, but it feels like it's getting worse and worse in in the way they're playing. I mean, Scott McTominay's had the most shots I think of any player per match this season. Um, so that just tells you like no one's really taking any shots. They're not really attacking well. I feel like Sheffield United could get something from this game. It's going to be Bramall Lane, 8pm, if the fans are going to be on it. If any team can come to your town and, and give you a, a nice, enjoyable three points when you're struggling at the moment, it's Manchester United, unfortunately. Um, Jim says, can we ask Noz what uh, he makes of the latest Manchester United takeover shenanigans or is it bad for his blood pressure? I mean, uh, both of those things can be true. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, again, like Jonathan just said, it's it just feels like chaos top to bottom. The funny thing is that if it was a more total takeover, then, then it would be good news because then uh, you'd see some kind of change. And, and for me personally, I would take Ratcliffe over the, uh, the Qatari ownership for obvious sort of reasons that I've mentioned before in terms of... Uh, uh, ethical sort of considerations and not being part of a sports washing operation. However, there are major concerns with um, 
Sir Jim. I keep, I've been watching the Reckoning, and I, and, and I, I accidentally keep on calling him Sir Jim, which is which is not a good idea. But <laughs> no. I'll just I'll just stick to Radcliffe. So 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 with Radcliffe, there's concerns about what's the biggest concern is debt. What happens with that? I know with billionaires, debt's sometimes seen as a good thing, but um, it's not seen as a good thing in football. And, and also, there's that thing of like, how can he effectively manage the debt or or give the fans assurance of the debt when he only owns twenty five percent? So that's a concern. The biggest thing with United, as well as the takeover, is the storylines. It's just it's just gossip and leaks and everything to do with with everything outside football. It's what were Bayern Munich called in the nineties? Was it um, they had a nickname didn't they? Because like there were just loads of gossip. FC Hollywood. Yeah, FC Hollywood. So it's so a yeah. So United are like a are like a low rent version of that. Just like it's like FC Hollyoaks. It's just it, 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 it's, 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 it's just loads of sort of like little petty sort of arguments and leaks and and the Sancho thing doesn't help. And then obviously you've got more serious issues that haven't helped. And one of the things you'd hope that could come out of this partial takeover by Ratcliffe is is um, some of the people that are making bad decisions are sort of swapped out or changed because um, one of the things I read about when the Qataris and Ratcliffe's team went to Old Trafford to speak to the club is that the people within the club much preferred the Qataris in their questions and their sort of sort of uh, the, the way they came across because they were far more sort of um, appreciative of what United were doing at the moment, whereas the Ineos team were far more critical to the basis about what was going wrong and being unhappy with it. So you'd hope that that's a good sign that they're kind of seeing things that just aren't good enough. I think Nas makes great points there. And one of the things that's really instructive about this potential takeover is, you know, without wanting to kind of um, cast aspersions on, on the Ratcliffe team, you, you just need to look at their takeover of Nice and, and how Nice have done since. Nice were, were doing really well in, in, in previous years in European football and, and, and had a, a solid team. They've got a decent academy. They brought through quite a few players from there in, in, in French football. And since that takeover, like Nice have kind of not really pulled up any trees, to be honest. The whole point of maybe running the sporting department would be um, improve the transfers, which is the biggest issue at United. They're always fighting fires. Like you need a striker one minute, you need a midfielder the next minute. They, they haven't foreseen the Casemiro decline, if you know what I mean. He, it was clear he had one year left, maybe at the top level, and then and then he's going to be on the decline. And we're seeing that this season. So it's now they're one step behind on everything. They now need a striker and another midfielder, maybe. And um, if you look at the situation at Nice, two of the biggest transfers in Nice in the in the last year or so was Ross Barkley. Uh, on a one-year deal, which didn't work out at all. He's obviously now left. And, and obviously um, uh, Aaron Ramsey as well, which didn't work out. The transfers at Nice haven't really been great and the fans there haven't been too satisfied with the transfer business really. So that that's slightly concerning as well. I don't know if that's maybe just a bit of bad luck. Maybe it's the circumstances at Nice. But, you know, with respect to like the Ratcliffe team, obviously there's evidence there in, in Nice that it hasn't really gone well on, in terms of transfers. So it leaves it does leave more questions on that point of view when you look at what, what's going on in, at Nice without wanting to sort of, Point fingers, if that makes sense. That makes you feel better, I'm sure, Nos, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I literally just said five minutes ago that I'm looking for little bits of hope, <laughs> and, and now Jonathan and, and I suspect I suspect Nick just just now is going to yeah. sort of come on. I feel your pain. I feel your pain. I feel your pain, Nos. Yeah, coming two footed, Nick. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll just stick a little, stick a little toe end in, and I think just to, just basically, I was I'm going to make going to make quite a similar point to um, to Jonathan's because like I think if you if you speak to people with with a close interest in the Radcliffe takeover and camp, for example, I think the point that they would make is that 
Radcliffe's got this experience at Nice, you know, and you know, club he's dipped his toe into the football water for quite a while now, um, whereas Shea Jassim hadn't. So they see that as advantageous. But I, I pulled up just now and um, an article by our friends at Get Finch Football News from January writing about exactly this topic. And the following sentence, the, the lack of planning and joined up thinking left Nice with a talented but horribly disjointed squad this season. Um, It'll fit right in. <laughs> for your own conclusions. Um, so I think uh, basically that that backs up um, precisely what Jonathan, I think, has just said. So we shall see. Sometimes people can learn from their mistakes, sometimes doing it first at, a, at another club, a, a slightly smaller club can prepare you but um a gamble isn't it whatever happens uh all right that'll do for part one part two uh we'll begin with man city brighton welcome to part two of the guardian football weekly uh the live show is coming up 13th of november london the troxy me baz ellis james troy townsend philippe Claire, the 15th in manchester uh me uh, Baz, John Bruin, Nader Manuha, uh, the 22nd in Brighton is available around the world. Uh, go to theguardian.com slash fwtour23. Noz, without giving away the finale, I've told you what it is because you're kind of involved. Do you think it will go down well? Oh, in- incredible, incredible! Like, <laughs> like, like I, I was saying to you that, like the fin- like the musical finales of, of previous uh, shows have been a really high bar, and and I genuinely cannot wait. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, in a way, can I just say you saying you look, you're, you're looking forward to it? From what you've told me, I'm slightly disturbed that you're looking forward to it, especially some of the filming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't have to look at that. I'll be facing away from that. Hopefully, um, Killian says, "Will Haaland ever score again?" I presume it's not Killian Mbappe, just you know, trying to cement his place as the best striker in the world. But if you are listening, Killian, very welcome. Uh, will City ever win again? Is Rodri actually that good? Rodri returns from his three-game suspension. City lost all three games that he wasn't available. They won in the Champions League when he was. So is it that simple, Jonathan? I'm just chuckling away to myself. Like, imagine if that. I, I, there's a good chance that actually might be Killian Mbappe. You know, just just <laughs> yeah. him, like, having a dig at Harlem. But um, that just that made me laugh a little bit. But um, I can't remember your question now. I was just thinking about Killian well, Mbappe. That's okay. And, no, and no, Harlem. You know, we. <laughs> That's the idea of the pod, I guess, is to vaguely entertain while talking about football. And we did that to you, Jonathan, so hopefully to some listeners at the same time. The question was, you know, basically sometimes players, when they don't play, improve, right? Because something goes wrong on the pitch. They go, oh, well, if, he was, if he'd been there. But, like, it does look really quite stark. Rodri's the stats when he plays and he doesn't are really quite stark. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. The stats when he plays and doesn't play are pretty... Um, concerning maybe the fact that also their backup um, has been criticised several times by the manager obviously Calvin Phillips hasn't really had a look in um, rumours that maybe in January he'll be available for sale so it doesn't really help obviously not having maybe a backup that, that Pep Guardiola seems to trust um, 100% and that, that doesn't help as well you know if there was a, if there was a sort of a solid backup that Pep trusted maybe maybe it wouldn't it would mitigate it but I know that obviously the Arsenal game was quite a while ago now a few weeks but one of the things I didn't really see covered too much was kind of City really, you know, going back to the Haaland point, they're really struggling up front. City, like for the last four or five years, they've completely dominated in terms of goals and expected goals and that kind of thing and, and, and really run the league that way. This season, they're actually kind of more defence-minded in terms of their best numbers statistically are how they're defended rather than attacking. And 
you look at the forward line and I felt, for example, in that Arsenal game, um, the likes of Phil Foden, players that are sort of expected to now step up, um, they're at a decent age now, didn't really do that. And obviously Grealish has had his injury issues slash celebration issues since they won the, the treble. Hasn't really been around too much, and um, he can't still be hung over. I mean, like I mean, mine last mine last a long time these days, but he can't still he can't still. He's be he's it. barely been seen since anyway. Put it that way, but um, you know, trying to integrate Nunes and and obviously Kovacic really struggled in that in that Arsenal game. Was lucky to stay on the field. It, it just seems that maybe you know we talked about the, the missing Rodri, but Gundogan, for example, someone is so influential in that midfield, but also gets goals and can can impact impact on the final third. It just feels like not only Haaland is, is struggling, but some of the players around him who'd, be, who'd expect to score goals. And obviously, the glaring miss is Kevin De Bruyne, who's just, you know, it's such a drop from when he's not playing to when he's playing. And that's, that's a massive thing that um, probably influenced that, that Arsenal game. So I feel that City, they're just not firing at the moment. And I don't really know whether that's Haaland to blame for, uh, for that or, you know, sh- should Haaland maybe be expected to contribute a little bit more in terms of his just all round? It's a difficult one to answer when you know you're an out and out striker, but yeah, I just, I just feel like the the players who they've signed haven't quite impacted yet either. I feel like the likes of Foden maybe seems to get maybe less scrutiny than say someone like Rashford. I know they're not exactly the same age, but similar kind of profile. Is it time for the likes of Foden to really start to step up now and 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 make much more of an impact on that team? I mean, it is even despite De Bruyne not being there, Nick and. You know, Mara's leaving and Gundawan. It still feels insane to go. You know, that that attack really isn't delivering, given what's there. Yeah, but no one, no one's really providing the goals apart from Haaland, are they? And I mean, Doku is going to be an an exceptional talent, but I think he might be one of those who needs half a season definitely to sort of bed in, get used to the pace, nail down a, a starting place. Alvarez, we've seen, we've seen some fantastic stuff from, but maybe not not week after week. It it, it does feel like everything up there, apart from Holland, is, is a little bit raw and, and and not fully tested. Um, and look, this is a very interesting game for them against Brighton. It's, it's not exactly must win. I think it's it's probably must win if you want to win the league by 10 points. Um, but um, it's usually quite a free-flowing game between these two. It's normally one, one that City do win. I will never forget covering a game, City v Brighton. I think it was August 2019. I think Potter was in charge. And City won 4-0, absolutely blew them away. Brighton barely got a touch. And Pep does his Pep thing and comes in and goes... All I know is that today I learned so much from Graham Potter and in his classic kind of slightly, well, more than slightly disingenuous pet way. So we might see see a bit more of that with De Zerbi this time. Um, but I think Rodri is an important player to, to have back against Brighton, who, who obviously really want to play through you and get into those spaces. Um, Brighton themselves are a little bit up and down, could, if we're being really picky, could maybe do with a result. But I think, yeah, Important one for City to get back on track. Important, I, I think, for Haaland to get a goal because otherwise people like us will start talking even more about it. Um, but yeah, something isn't quite right. They're not quite as free-flowing or free-scoring as we used to seeing them. There we are, Nos. You wanted a glimmer of hope. And between them, Jonathan and Nick have just written off Man City from every competition. <laughs> well, well, also, like it's so it's so funny. Like I, I think as, as football fans, you kind of want to be part of everything and when you want to 
feel the full range of emotion and some of the some of the tweets and I presume from kids from City fans have been quite hilarious recently. Like there's one been one graphic where it's just like this re- this picture of, of of fans invading the city pitch and the text is keep your he- head held high. This city will rise again. It's what we do best. I'm like thinking you're fucking second or whatever, like third, like t- <laughs> like like two points off the top, sort of like you like earned the right to have like a, a, a sort of like we will come back from this kind of slogan right now. It's kind of like you don't know problems, mate. Speak to United or Everton fans. <laughs> yeah, um, mind you, a lot of fans from EFL clubs be like, true, true. Come on, come on. You had the '90s, <laughs> mate. Suck it up. Um, Newcastle Palace um, we talked a lot about the Tonali situation yesterday Uh, Newcastle made an official statement Uh, Newcastle United can confirm that Sandro Tonali is subject to investigation by the Italian Prosecutor's Office and Italian Football Federation in relation to illegal betting activity Sandro is fully engaging with the investigation and will continue to cooperate with all relevant authorities he and his family will continue to receive the club's full support due to this ongoing process Sandro and Newcastle United are unable to offer further comment at this time. There's been quite a lot of interesting chat about, you know, footballers and gambling and gambling addiction. I don't know, unless you guys do know if Denali has said he is addicted to gambling or not. But Paul Merson put out a tweet saying, just want to wish Sandra Denali all the best from his horrible addiction. Hope FIFA and everyone else goes easy and to understand this is an illness, to stop throwing out big bands and help people get help. I understand if someone is playing in a game and is betting on the other team that a ban should be imposed, but people need help, he says. I've had people say to me, have some willpower, and I say, next time you have the shits, stop it with willpower. I love Merce, but (laughs) I hadn't read that through first time. Um, By banning people, it stops people asking for help. Please show some understanding. I've worked with Merce for a long time. I've seen firsthand what it has done to him. I recommend going to listen to that pod that Baz and I did with him I think it might have been even a couple of years ago now he's spoken very openly about it but that is an interesting point that he makes isn't it Noz that these potential bans have to be in place obviously if you're betting against your own side if that is the situation and it's tricky and it is complicated I get it's complicated then people don't ask for help they just hide because they know what the you know the, the punishment will be well, well, that's exactly it, and, and and I think with I think with any addiction, especially gambling, where it's so easy to hide it from your loved ones or, or anyone, I think the worst thing you can do is putting anything in place that will stop them reaching out and saying, "I'm doing this" or "I've been doing this," and I need help. So, I completely agree with Merson. I think I, I think the I think it gets complicated because you've got the the, the Tony situation where there has been a punishment. And I don't necessarily think that was fair either. It's it, it's that thing of like there needs to be a proper discussion amongst the the stakeholders at the top of the game about how they deal with this. Because I mean, it's not an original thought. This, but obviously, the, the, there's also the issue about how entrenched gambling is and and betting companies are within the game. And it's and it's so it's so unfair to to have that always pumped at players and at fans and then take the hard line when it comes to anyone who's who sort of succumbs to that advertising and then and then starts having a problem because the thing is even if it's not an addiction in the, in the in the um uh, the strong sense of the uh, of the word it's still he will have known that he shouldn't be doing that and yet he's continued to do it because it's hard to to stop and it's i suppose it's that similar thing i i, I think i saw a documentary um 
with Merchant where he sort of, sort of said part of what initially gets you into it is it gives you that kind of rush that football does. So you kind of worry that this is just the tip of the iceberg. And then if you've got a situation where it's a wide scale problem, then then do you ban everyone? At what point do you kind of think, right, we need to get a hold of this? And similar to other issues where where there's been education within within clubs to footballs about not only are you not allowed to do this, this is why it's it's unhealthy and this is why it's dangerous to you beyond the rules. Um, I think that would be welcome. I saw an interesting um, bit of Gabby Bonnehall, uh, I think it was on TalkSport, saying, you know, he, he got addicted to poker because he was bored. Like, he finished work at half past midday. And, and like, Jonathan, you work with players and you wanted to make a point. So make your point. You don't have to answer this question. I just think it's an interesting, you know, the idea of when you're talking to young players about what you do with your time is to, is to come up with things to do after you have finished training that aren't this. There's probably two issues I, I would see that, Gambling is, the problem with it is that it can also damage the sporting integrity of the actual sport and the game. So whereas, for example, if someone's got maybe an alcohol problem, if someone's, I don't know, addicted to drugs or, you know, any other kind of vice, it's a personal issue. And of course, everyone's going to give the support they need to to get through that. The the problem with, I guess, where the the contradiction with the gambling addiction is, obviously, there's an element of sensitivity, but then there's also the sense that he was, I think, according to reports, and I think his agent has come out and said that he, he has an addiction. Um, which I think surprised Newcastle from what I've read. The allegations are that he was betting on AC Milan matches. So the sporting integrity of the game is called into question there a little bit, which is different to say if you're, if you're, you know, if you're addicted to alcohol or something, it's not necessarily, it's going to worsen the team, isn't it? You know, you could argue than, than kind of the way betting can impact football. Um, but you touched on a really good point there as well, Max, in the sense of like for players, and I think this speaks a little bit to modern football really, like that we almost take football like so seriously that, Players aren't really allowed any kind of other vice if you if you really think about it and play it out like if you if you imagine like a player after finishing training at say midday or one o'clock and going to the pub and having a beer, that would be all over the Twitter that would be all over social media within an hour an hour you know if it you know going back to the Grealish thing it was it was made a big thing it was the biggest celebration of his life he's trained his whole life to win those trophies and and it was almost like became comedy that he was celebrating if that makes sense and it's hard. I think it's quite hard for players to have a release in the modern game because so much of what they do is scrutinised, not only from fans, but also from maybe the clubs and, and how much they're monitored in terms of body weight and you know, body, you know, body mass and that kind of thing, even, even eating something out, out of line. So I guess there is that kind of question, is it, are players allowed to enjoy themselves enough in other areas that, that doesn't maybe make them go to those kind of uh, maybe areas like gambling and playing poker, like you've just mentioned there with Agbonahor? to maybe get that buzz, that kick that they, they may need, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult to comment from person to person. I wouldn't want to sort of say anything about Sonali without knowing him personally and knowing the situation. But yeah, I do sometimes wonder if it's, are we a bit too harsh on players in, in, in the way we allow them to just enjoy themselves when they're, when they're on their time off? And actually, there's a, uh, Craig Foster, who I work with, right, who's, was an excellent footballer, played for Palace and Portsmouth. It's a super bright guy, right? He's a human rights activist in Australia. He said he found football quite boring, right? And, you know, he perhaps, you know, the the, the sort of... I, I'm trying to find the right way to articulate this. You you have to find the mundane nature of the game. You have to, you, you have to be a certain type of person to find that fulfilling in a way... That means you are totally fulfilled as a person when you can't actually do all the things that the rest of us can do, right? 
and just go, you know, I'm just going to get smashed tonight because actually my work is okay tomorrow, you know, and, and those kind of things. And that's sort of an interesting part of the mentality that you need to become a, a footballer, if that makes any sense. Nick, you wanted to say something? And the game, I think, even more has a responsibility to, to to surround players with the right messages too. Like if if Tonali does end up being out for some time, he's he's gonna I'm gonna come back to a club that's got two official betting partners, um, which whose insignia you in logos and stuff you don't have to look very far to find at all. Um, when when Ivan Tony comes back soon soonish um he'll be advertising a betting company on the front of his shirt it's that mixture of priorities and messages that must make must make it very hard for a young player to figure things out and i i i think we've we've got to look very carefully at what what environmental sort of messages we're sending out because i i think it's very very jarring indeed uh, let's just rattle through the rest of the Premier League games then. Brentford-Burnley. No, on Brentford, which is not necessarily relevant for now, but when we talk about Ivan Tony, they might sell him in January. They might miss Mbwemo and Wissa for AFCON, which means a, a huge amount of pressure on Neil Mope coming in for Brentford to be the only player up front. Forrest-Luton, Bournemouth-Wolves, the, uh, the Gary O'Neill derby. He will definitely be up for that, given what has happened, uh, uh, what Bournemouth did. And given what's happened to Bournemouth, no win for them yet uh, this season. Um, on Sunday, Aston Villa versus uh, West Ham. Interestingly, Aston Villa, according to David Ornstein, have, have entered a strategic partnership with the Japanese club Vissel Kobe. Um, the aim to open path for top talent to play in Europe and ultimately for Aston Villa. Uh, later this month, 216 prospects from the current J-League leaders will train with Villa's academy. And on Monday, Spurs play Fulham. Um, uh, they're top of the table right now, Tottenham. High chance they'll be fourth by the time this game comes around. Oh, it was so sweet while it lasted for Big Ange, didn't it? Um, but uh, hopefully it'll do you a favour, Noz. Uh, and that'll do for part two. Uh, part three, we'll begin with the EFL. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, a note from our sponsors slash bosses. Uh, the Guardian is open to anyone who wants to read it or listen to it. It is closed to billionaire owners telling us what to do. We might be ranted at, laughed at, parodied even. But because of support from our readers and listeners, we remain independent. If you can, join millions of others around the world who are keeping it that way. Go to support.theguardian.com and say Football Weekly sent you if there is a box saying who sent you, just so it reflects well on us. Uh, the EFL is back Quite a few interesting stories here, Nick. Wayne Rooney's first game um, against Middlesbrough. Millwall now without Gary Rowett, a huge boss at Sheffield Wednesday. And of course, you can you can mention Ipswich Town. This is sort of loosely where you just wanted to mention Ipswich Town. But the Rooney story is fascinating. I don't know who Ipswich Town are, Max, so it's absolutely fine. <laughs> um, yeah, Rooney um, making his debut against, I, I think, Michael Carrick's Middlesbrough um, in, you know, a clash of two, um, two old buddies, the, the, the umpteenth ex-United player now managing in the division. And, um, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to, to see what sort of positive impact he, he he can have in a team that's already sixth and doing pretty well, as, as I'm sure we've covered before fairly ruthless decision to ask John Eustace and bring him in but he has got previous Rooney for kind of overachieving with a group of players relative to the context in this division so fascinating start for him and Boa obviously on much better form now as well so those two could end up 
being playoff contenders alongside each other. There's another managerial debut, um, Sheffield Wednesday at Watford. You've got the 34-year-old Danny, uh, my pronunciation might be awful, uh, Rill, um coming in fairly unproven. 34. It's a big decade. A decade older than a manager is a, is a moment in time, isn't it? It's, it's disgusting being older than a football manager. I mean, I remember when you first feel older than football players when you hit about 23 or 24 and you, and, and you feel you recoil and now it's even worse. So he get, he goes to Watford um, Wednesday, obviously, badly in need of a lift and what he can do with a slightly ageing and stale set of players will be interesting. Um, and then the, the big sacking has been Gary Rowett for Millwall, which... It's another one that feels a bit harsh because I think in in his four seasons they've come. I, I wrote it down. I, I think they came eighth, eleventh, ninth, and eighth. I mean, they they kind of dropped the ball on the last day in terms of reaching the playoffs last season, but they have done well. They probably have overachieved. It's their, their most consistent run for a long time, and even though, though they're fifteenth now, they're only three points off the playoffs in a traditionally totally bonkers division. I I I think there have been some sort of moans about the style of play maybe it's a bit artisanal or that kind of thing so we'll see who who they get in I think we're in this trend now aren't we of young impressive coaches with um, with you know fresh ideas and certain philosophies I think if you look at the top two you've got Leicester with Enzo Maresca come from Man City you've got the club I won't name um, in second, Ipswich Town, with Kieran McKenna, very young, come from Man United. You even look at the top two in, in League One. You've got um, John Moussinho at Portsmouth, I think, is 37 and came from almost nowhere and they're unbeaten, I think. Um, Liam Manning in his second job, 38, playing very progressive football at Oxford. So you can see the kind of direction that clubs in the Football League are going now. And I think if you're maybe seem to be stagnating a bit under a more experienced head like Gary Rowett, then 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 that is seen as the way forward. So very interesting times ahead, I think, for a lot of these clubs that are kind of regenerating, rebranding almost. And you have a top two this weekend. They've got some big away games. I think Leicester at Swansea. Um, Leicester look way too good for the championship. So we'll, we'll see if they pick up another win. And Ipswich in the... Big Friday night game. I said I wouldn't be watching a Saturday night game. I'll be watching the yeah. Friday night next uh, at, at Rotherham away. Um, tricky one, Rotherham struggling a bit. Um, Ipswich, you know, off the back of a great run, but off the back of an international break too. So interesting times. And I think this trend towards youth and progressiveness in management, especially in the Football League, is definitely worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, interestingly, Kevin Muscat is the favourite for the Millwall job. I mean, he's not young. And people of a certain vintage will remember him being quite a dangerous footballer on the pitch. He manages in Japan, Australian. So there are similarities with Ange. Does not manage how he played. And uh, it could be interesting to see if he gets the job because he plays very progressive footballer, football not dissimilar to uh, to Postacoglu. Um, the Premier League will issue guidance to its clubs uh, later this week. So presumably today or tomorrow advising them uh, to prohibit Israel and Palestinian flags inside stadiums. The league says the decision has been taken after it consulted with safety organisations and Jewish groups, um, with this being one of their recommendations. Premier League players intend to wear black armbands, have a minute silence before kickoff. The same will happen across the EFL. Mo Salah made a statement on Instagram and X 
Yesterday, it's been viewed millions of times. He said, it's not always easy to speak in times like this. There's been too much violence, too much heartbreak and brutality. The escalations in recent weeks is unbearable to witness. All lives are sacred and must be protected. The massacres need to stop. Families are being torn apart. What's clear now is that humanitarian aid to Gaza must be allowed immediately. The people there are in terrible conditions. The scenes at the hospital last night were horrifying. The people of Gaza need food, water and medical supplies urgently. Um, I'm calling on the world leaders to come together to prevent a further slaughter of innocent souls. Humanity must prevail. What, what did you make of that, Nils? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I, I really feel for, for Mo Salah because the pressure has been building on him to make a statement. And, and even in making that statement, like he, 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 looked, he looked petrified in that video, which, which is so sad because, because he is a footballer and why should a footballer have that much pressure to make that kind of statement? I mean, I can totally understand where people are in desperate situations. People feel as if they've got no voice. So they're, so they're really desperate for someone who has got a voice to speak up. However, like the, the pressure on him must be incredible. I think what he said is true. I think sometimes when you say, all civilian lives matter or all, all civilian lives are important. It can almost echo this, uh, well, well, the phrase all lives matter, which 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 was a, a direct attack on Black Lives Matter. But it's a completely different thing because when you're saying civilian lives matter, it's a, because people are in direct and immediate danger. It's not this theoretical thing or it's not this this sort of argument that you're, that you're saying to counter anything else and... And I think that's the important thing to remember. And also, blood does not water down blood. Some people have got angry that that why why are you mentioning both sides? And it's because we're talking about civilians here. We're talking about kids. So so that's how I feel about it. And even now, like I, I'm tripping over my words, and we're all we're all tripping over our words. And imagine if you're Mo Salah, who um, the the numbers for that message that that he put on on social media are astronomical and to have that much pressure on, on one man who was essentially in that position to make that statement and, and and people are demanding he make that statement because he happens to be good at football um i, I wanted to reach out to a loyalist called Oron uh, who messaged me from Israel that just a football fan caught up in the middle of this he loves the pod he's broken and he's hurting and he doesn't agree with the stance that we have taken on this pod. And I just wanted to send my love to him. And and as I've said before, like we don't have the answers. We won't get everything right, but we sincerely care about everyone. And I know that might not feel like what, you know, the the exactly the message that Oren wanted to hear, but I really wanted to just speak out to him because he sent a very personal and a very heartfelt message to us. And I wanted to reflect that. There was a really interesting article in The Athletic actually about Tottenham, with its Jewish roots, uh, in many ways illustrates like the, the totally the impossibility of discussing this and reflecting it in a way that doesn't alienate and upset somebody. Five percent of the match-going fans are Jewish, like, which is ten times the average. But it's obviously not a huge percentage in terms of people who go and watch Tottenham. Uh, there's obviously a real history of support there as well. Manuel Solomon's the only Israel, Israeli player in the Premier League. He called Spurs' statement vanilla. Um, when he was talking to Israeli TV, it very much echoed the Premier League statement. The chair of the charity that supports former Spurs players has resigned. Some Israeli fans are furious. There's a really striking image of, of a car with bullet holes after the Hamas attack with a Spurs badge hanging from the windscreen. 
meanwhile, there's the Arabic Spurs fans. It's It's got 140,000-odd followers on Twitter. And they tweeted before the Tottenham statement saying, look, our shared love for football, and by extension, the club has been a source of solace and unity in times of adversity. We kindly request that Tottenham Hotspur, a club that has historically celebrated the values of unity and fairness in sport, maintain a neutral stance in the current situation, refraining from supporting one side over the other in this painful conflict. Uh, elsewhere, Nice have suspended uh, defender Yusuf Atal over a social media post relating to the war. German side Mainz have suspended Anwar Al-Ghazi for a pro-Palestine social media post, which he's since deleted. Karen Benzema is filing lawsuits against the French deputy Nadine Murano, who called him a Hamas propaganda agent, and advertiser Frank Tapiro, who called him an accomplice of terrorism. Um, that comes after Benzema's public support to Gaza. Please go and listen to Today in Focus. You know, they have real experts, proper producers across that entire story. Um, elsewhere, uh, we talked about that Brazil-Uruguay World Cup qualifier a bit, bit earlier. Neymar tore his ACL in that, so we actually wish him the best. Al-Hilal posted a, a very strange comeback stronger message on Twitter with a picture of him injured. I mean, I, it's an odd picture to show. Uh, but yeah, we wish him we wish him all the best, of course. Um, uh, Noz, did you want to talk about Colleen Rudy, the real Wagatha story? Uh, I mean, I just, I, I, I just found it fascinating, and uh, and also like usually, I, I've got a big issue with these streaming sort of platforms stretching out stories. So just make it one hour instead of three or four parts. But because everything is so heartbreaking at the moment, like I welcomed some bubblegum viewing. So uh, no, I enjoyed. It. I, I especially enjoyed the bit where Colleen said that that Wayne Rooney got so into the case that he considered enrolling into a into a law school, and, and she she shut him shut him down and said no no you shouldn't do that which uh, I think is the greatest crime of all in all in all of this. I agree. Just imagine if you were like one of those trainees. You know, you just finished your degree and you turn up and there's like ten of you. You're all trying to muscle going around the. De- I'm not an expert, but you, don't you go around the departments? Oh, you're doing what? employment and you're doing fraud and then Wayne Rooney and what's your name Wayne got a badge on that says Wayne ah it's a wonderful image and and just this idea of when he's conferring with his fellow fellow lawyers he'd he'd do that thing of putting his hand over his mouth yeah (laughs) (laughs) on TV Um, Barry says up until a few weeks ago I played with Pascal Chimbonda in the Northeast Veterans League for a couple of years a great bloke, loads of material. Not entirely surprised that Skem, or Skelmersdale, as they should be known, were 2-0 down after eight minutes, having witnessed Pascal's slow starts, but sure he'll do well. From Will Unwin, who, who went, he said, cold, wet and windy, 2-0 down after eight minutes, lost 3-1. He offered £10 to the opposition if they could string 10 passes together and made a bet with the Kendall chairman that if Skem don't win the league game in December, he'll buy him a steak dinner. And I shook his hand twice. He seems a nice guy kept giving the lino shit and responded by saying he wasn't a good player. Oppo manager was a train driver. That's what we got from Will. Um, and Alan Biggs says, uh, um, uh, who is uh, big in Sheffield, Alan Biggs, understand there's a strong possibility of Chris Waddle returning to semi-pro football two months short of his 63rd birthday. Hallam 1860 will consider sending an SOS to the former England star amid a chronic run of injuries. Waddle's a friend of the club. Step nine in the pyramid believed he will not need too much encouragement. Never really hung up his boots. Hallam have at least six players out with serious injuries. That's play with 10 men after the latest tonight. So welcome back, Chrissy Waddle. Grow your hair out. Put on that old Tottenham kit. Ah, oh, wonderful. Um, and John says, stop getting Father Ted wrong. 
we apologise. I'm not sure exactly what we got wrong. I think we conflated the Eurovision and the walking football episodes. That wasn't, I think I knew what I was talking about, but I'm not an expert. So uh, we can only apologise. And uh, that'll do for today. Uh, Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Max. Cheers, Noz. Thanks. Uh, That is it for today. Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. This is The Guardian.